0: Hey, welcome to the Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm joined by my colleague Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Greetings. Peter and I are also here with, I'm happy to report, another WGBH News colleague, Philip Martin. Philip, thank you for being here. Adam, Peter, thank you very much. This, is the, to be fir- here. this is the first time you've come to shoot the breeze with That's us, right. right? That's right. Uh, I want to introduce you as... WGBH News senior reporter. But given that we just had this merger with the New England Center for Investigative Reporting, is that still your official title? Uh, we just
1: add investigative to it. Uh, something I've been investigative using anyway, for years. Yeah.
0: Okay, and serial award winner. <laughs> serial uh, that, that's award not winner, your official but title, but you, you are, in fact, right. a serial award winner. I, <laughs> oh.
2: however, am merely overweight and hairy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Philip also happens to be from Detroit, which is where the Democrats, of course, just wrapped up their second round of presidential debates. We're going to talk about those in a minute. But first, Philip, I want to get your take on this piece that just ran in Politico titled Black Journalists Push Media to Cover Hyper-Racial Moment in Politics. The gist of the piece, as I read it, is that a lot of African-American journalists Think the media as a whole isn't focused enough on the role that racism is going to play in the presidential campaign and is still overly squeamish about calling out President Trump for racist comments or racism when he makes them or manifests it.
1: Is that a fair summary? I think the article was spot on. And You, you had people speaking in the piece, like Wesley Lawry for, at the Washington Post, for example. Uh, I worked as for a long time as uh, NPR's first uh, race relations correspondent, and uh, even then found that when you raise race uh, in very, very legitimate ways, it was treated tangentially. Uh, and so what, uh, what journalists are saying, particularly the NABJ National Association of Black Journalists, uh, whom the article focused on in part, uh, is that uh, when you when race is right in front of you and racism is right in front of you, name it. Uh, don't treat it like it's uh, it's uh, uh, it's tangential uh, that it's uh, ancillary to to the discussion or to the issue.
0: Do you feel like the press as a whole has gotten better at doing that? I felt like we we saw when. President Trump went after the so-called squad first, the four congresswomen of color, and then went after Elijah Cummings and the city of Baltimore, I felt like we were witnessing a sea change with a lot of outlets, not all of them, but CNN, but also National Public Radio, which I think of as pretty cautious, saying these were racist comments, using that phrase again and again. So do do you see a change
1: underway, even if, maybe the media as a whole isn't where you'd like it to be? Or am I overstating it? No, I, th- I think you are, once again, I think you're spot on. I think if you look at uh, the Washington Post, for example, which uh, has expressed am- uh, ambivalence on- in calling it, if you will, they were spot on and in- in named it as racist. Uh, there was no ambiguity after a few days. Uh, the New York Times, however, really hesitated before they named it, uh, if you will. And- but I think the media has been changing a lot ever since, believe it or not, Katrina. I think by uh, by focusing on what was actually happening on the ground in Katrina and bringing it up to date to now to looking at race and race relations and racism, uh, and not allowing that term to be expropriated by those who use it falsely, like uh, the president himself, by trying to turn it around to declare that it was Cummings who was racist after being after, after he was cited as being a racist. It's one of those Orwellian moments that we're having uh, right now in American politics that's, uh, uh, that I think has to be uh, challenged.
0: Oh, I thought you were looking to hop in, Peter. Peter, uh, were you part of the discussions that happened here in WGBH News about whether we were going to call the president's comments about the squad, say, racist or use other language?
2: Um, I have to confess, I stayed on the sidelines. I followed it closely. Um, I see, let me back off for a second. Sure. Let, let me say something related for a second. I... I thought the political article was fascinating, and um, I think this these agonizing reappraisals we are all going through from the media are um, are to be expected. And are a good sign. It it shows that we're being thoughtful. I'm not saying it's easy. Um, My experience with reporting on race comes largely from when I was a very young reporter during the first three years of busing in Boston. And I I do have uh, an inherent caution because I I witnessed firsthand what happens when racial tensions are really, really high. So I think this debate is good. Look, we live in a... uh, pretty troubling time. I mean, I live in Jamaica Plain. Um, a couple of weeks ago, this was well before Trump's latest outrage, I talking to one of my neighbors, and he just says, geez, I got to tell you, Peter, reading the news these days, it's pretty tough being black. I mean, and I know exactly what he meant. I mean, I asked him, he says, well, it, it, it's really disturbing, even though he said, I never voted for the guy, to see the guy who's president of the United States, uh, you know, he said, essentially attacking me. And again, my neighbor went on to say, you know, he says, I never voted for Reagan, but I never felt that way with him. I never voted for Bush. I never away from him. I, I mean, if you have black or brown skin in America today— I think I wonder why you turn the news on at all. Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. No, I think of, you are. I, I'm sort of spewing out there. But let's get back to the discussion in the GBH newsroom. Um, I didn't know which way I was going to fall on that. And I will admit to um, waiting for consensus to form. And it was an example of uh, uh gladly looking for guidance. You know, that might be that for many years, as some of our listeners know, I ran the Boston Phoenix and I had to make those decisions. Well, sometimes it's nice not to make a decision. Um, And, you know, without getting into the specifics, I mean, Philip was in the middle of, in a way, Philip kicked the discussion off by circulating a memo from NPR's standard and practice guy and... uh, It's a complicated issue, but it's not that complicated. You know, racism, to paraphrase whoever it was in the Supreme Court, is sort of like pornography, hard to define,
1: but you know it when you see it. Um. I think that's I think that's spot on because uh, uh, and by the way that memo I'm just gonna I'll tell you why you're spot on but that memo uh, was uh, was the NPR memo was introduced by uh, and written by a friend of mine at NPR who I worked with uh, at in, during the at the Pointer Institute uh, on a program called Covering Race uh, and he disagrees with me uh, and I disagree with him he does not believe you should use the term. Racist to describe someone who utters uh, uh, the N word, for example. Uh, that uh, you only say the comments are racist. You say the comments are racist, precisely. Is. Yeah, and, uh, and and what I was saying um, uh, was spot on is the fact that uh, I. I the notion of knowing it when you see when you see it is so uh, so true. For example, I would not use the word fascist uh, to describe what is happening, or fascism to describe what's happening in the United States today, because it does not meet the objective standards of what is fascism. Sure, we're heading toward illiberal uh, aspects of our society, but there are other things too, other conditions that necessitate what is fascism, and that and we are not seeing that right now. We may be seeing as some people have pointed out, symptoms of something disturbing. Uh, But it's not a term that applies to what is happening right now in the U.S.
2: Yeah, I I mean, just to be clear on the Trump case, because it might appear that I was dancing around it, if what the president has been doing and and appears to be continuing to engage in, if that isn't racism, I don't know what is.
0: All right, one more topic before we get to... The main event, talking about the debates and, and who did well and who did poorly. Uh, Philip, since you are from the great state of Michigan, I got to ask you about Indeed, great. <laughs> this heated back and forth that, that played out on Twitter recently after uh, Claire McCaskill, the former Missouri senator, had an exchange following, I believe, the first debate with Brian Williams, the NBC anchor. Let's take a listen senator a very direct question having to do with youngstown ohio having to do with a place i used to live joplin missouri what happens when you walk into those communities and say great news you're all going to get green jobs we'll need the keys to your f-150s because we're going all uh, uh all electric it, it would not be good yeah um and i think what tim ryan is trying to
2: express is a bucket of cold water which is reality about where america is america is generally not as far along the left line as bernie and elizabeth free stuff from the government does not play well in the midwest
0: that prompted will lead Shahid from the progressive group Justice Democrats to tweet that Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar are also from the Midwest. And Shahid added, Medicare and Social Security are both technically free stuff and they play very well. That, in turn, prompted a protest from Jonathan Weissman, who is the deputy Washington editor for the New York Times. He tweeted, Saying Rashida Tlaib, Democrat Detroit, and Ilhan Omar, Democrat Minneapolis, are from the Midwest is like saying... Rep. Lloyd Doggett, D. Austin, is from Texas, or Rep. John Lewis, D. Atlanta, is from the Deep South. Come on. Weissman has since deleted that tweet following a huge backlash, saying he tried and failed to make a point about the political differences between urban and rural areas. Uh, Philip, what's your take on on, uh, this back and forth?
1: Boy, did he fall flat. Put it this way. The Midwest, uh, of course, uh, uh, where I'm from, Detroit, we call it the big D, of course, is also (laughs) the Midwest. That is the Midwest. And uh, I think Claire McCaskill is doing what a lot of uh, folks do in politics and, unfortunately, in media overly generalize To basically see the Midwest as only, let's say, for example, Iowa, uh, rural Iowa, and let's say rural Illinois, uh, is is a huge mistake. The Midwest, of course, is also uh, the the large cities, of of which three fourths of those who live in the Midwest live in the the cities. And so it's extraordinary uh, that uh, again, she she and others would overgeneralize. But it's not the only term that they overgeneralize. Rural, for example, when they say rural, that's supposed to be uh, uh, that's supposed to be shorthand for white rural voters. Well, you also have black farmers. Not a lot of them these days, and uh, decreasing in numbers. But you have you have rural black farmers. You have South Asian farmers.
0: You were saying before we started recording, you, there are no. some black farmers that you are related. Well, to. Well, that's right. Yeah. I, I
1: have farmers in my family from Georgia and Virginia, uh, 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 in Tifton and uh, Alapaha, Georgia, the, which by the way is the Deep South. It's not just Alabama. Which is the fulcrum uh, that people refer uh, that might be seen as the deep deep south, but it is also parts of Georgia. It's in the same way Detroit uh, and even Pittsburgh are part of the uh, the Midwest. Pittsburgh is considered the, the sort of the in line. Uh, and Pennsylvania, um, Philadelphia, rather, of course, is considered the East Coast. But Pits- but Pittsburgh, even Pittsburgh, so from Pittsburgh all the way to Minneapolis and, and St. Paul, are considered the Midwest.
0: I should say, before we get to you, Peter, that I was one of the people giving Weissman a hard time on Twitter. I tweeted something like, uh, you know, I-, I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, and have always considered myself from the Midwest, but is that too urban? Does that not count anymore? Uh, Peter you're here with two people who see themselves as being from the Midwest. You have a bit of a different take as a Boston. Well, I shouldn't say as a Boston native. You have a bit of a different take. Well, I'm,
2: I, I suppose I'm not from Boston. I'm from Dorchester. I mean, <laughs> you know, if you want to play that game, Trump that. Um, I'm sitting here with a big smile on my face because in the first part of the conversation, I was intentionally trying to be, you know, Pretty delicate. Um, I have to say, and you have to let me continue after I say this. I think everyone's crazy about this thing. Claire McCaskill made a gross made a generalization. Maybe it was a gross generalization. She is, after all, from Missouri. Now, isn't that part of the Midwest? Yes, yes. Before anyone says anything, it's more southern than it is Midwestern. I mean, you can slice this salami so many ways. Now. Nothing Philip said do I disagree with. And, you know, nothing you said. I, I mean, I'm joking about where I'm from o- on this podcast. I've uh, as several times described myself as an East Coast provincial,
0: and you have, and, and I, <laughs> which I, I, mean I got to say is is not. A, I've never heard anyone else use that phrase, no. and I love the self awareness. Well, that it I, I, I I've
2: come to the realization that you know I'm I am a, a in many ways a prisoner of my experience. I've lived most of my life in the Northeast, and you know for all whatever cosmopolitan is I might strike in some departments, in many other departments, I'm a very provincial person. But Claire McCaskill said something that was a, you know, okay, a gross generalization. I knew what she meant. And by by the way, when I talk about Midwesterners, and you've called me upshot many times, but you've often said, well, how about the divide between the urban and rural? And... Yeah. Listen, let, let, me, let me try to illustrate my feelings about this with an anecdote. Many years ago, in one of my admittedly rare trips outside of New England, I was in Austin, Texas, and I at the time was trying to get Molly Ivins to write a piece for me. And uh, when we met, she said, so, uh, you know, how are you liking your visit? And I said, I got to tell you, Molly, I love Texas. And she goes, honey, this is Austin. Austin ain't Texas. I mean, it, 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 you know, we all make these distinctions. Um, I think people are reading an awful lot into an awful lot of things here.
0: For what it's worth... I think that, well, people might have raised an eyebrow at Claire McCaskill's description. I think it was because it was Jonathan Weissman from The New York Times sort of uh, taking up her narrative and and intensifying it. I think that's what really sparked the pushback. And by the way, I actually, uh, you know, a lot of people accused him of— racism for, oh, you're saying that Ilhan Omar can't be Midwestern, and you're saying that Rashida Tlaib can't be Midwestern, and that John Lewis can't be Southern. Uh, You're basically saying that that people of color can't be part of, of the region that they think of themselves as being from. I do believe, Weissman, that he was trying to make a point about the differences between urban and rural politics. I just think I he think got it wrong. right. And I, by that, the way, he was. you know, I, the, the Texas yeah. representative he cited happens to be a white guy and that bolsters Weissman's case. There is a difference between urban and rural worldviews. And I think it's totally legitimate to point that out. What I just bristled at as someone who still thinks of himself as being from the Midwest originally is the notion that, that the cities don't count as Midwestern and that the only thing that's authentically of that region Is the rural parts?
1: Well, I think ironically, uh, these the comments about rural uh, uh, that were amplified by Wiseman actually uh, overshadowed something that some people might consider even more glaring, which is the content itself. For her uh, to say free stuff, it's not a uh, some would call it a Republican talking point. Uh, that uh, the notion of free stuff that's really not free, of course, you're paying into it when you're paying Social Security, yeah. you're paying into it when you're paying Medicaid. And so it's, it's quite interesting that uh, folks did not uh, – some folks did not take her up on the comment itself. Um, no,
2: but, le- but let me I, – I, 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 I'm, I'm now playing devil's advocate. Please. Your, your point is well taken. But Social Security is really old. Social Security once was free stuff to people. It's not anymore, right. and I, I, I think what she's, what I think she was referring to was, you know, something new which would be perceived as free. I just think we're overanalyzing many things to death. Now, in the process, we come up with some very interesting distinctions that i think do shed light but that do sh- shed light on subjects large and small but when as people did on tweet at twitter people start accusing the guy from the new york times of being racist it's just going too far i, mean, I agree and yeah. by the way yeah. he was wise to take the tweet down he was trying to spark a discussion and instead the discussion got away from him and um by the way, a, a trend on Twitter that I approve of these days is when someone takes a tweet down and then they often go on Twitter and say, by the way, I removed tweet X for a reason yeah, Y. Yeah, I like that too. I mean, it's it's fine. You know, I sort of hate the word transparency. It's honest. Yeah. I you try know? to do that except for my really
0: bad ones. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Let's move on to what was supposed to be the main event, but maybe now is part three of our conversation. Uh, Peter, you and I have been shooting the breeze about the debates. Among other things, yeah. During them, right after them. Uh, But, Philip, I have not yet gotten your take on how various candidates did in your home city. Who do you think came out of Detroit looking good, maybe stronger than they were before, and who uh, might wish they could have a do-over?
1: I, I was, first of all, uh, I think before I even started watching the debate, I was just so fascinated to see it taking place at the Fox Theater, a theater I hung out uh had in, in my youth. That's very cool. Which has been rehabilitated. An absolutely beautiful place, yeah. right? Yeah, it was. It And it's an absolutely beautiful place. Uh, there have been performances, great performances over the years. But when I was growing up, it started to deteriorate, and it was a mess. Uh, the birds started to occupy it, uh, and uh, um, and homeless people, and, uh, and it was not... And so to see it in on display and to see the candidates actually standing in front of a Detroit audience it, at the Fox Theater was, I, I tell you, it was a point of great pride. Now, as to your question, I would say, hands down, uh, the winner of the two debates, two nights of debates, uh, was Elizabeth Warren. On, you are correct, <laughs> on, t- on Tuesday, <laughs> hands down. There, there was no there and I think that it was uh, it was there were some problematic moments actually on the Wednesday night. Uh, not problematic for me, but I think problematic for some of the candidates. I think that um uh, f- I think Biden held up, but i he was not the figure of authority that you would want to see facing Donald Trump uh, in 2020 uh, and I think the same thing can even be said of uh, of Harris uh, she was uh, she was a, a shell of the performance that she uh, put on uh, several weeks ago in the, the first debate the MSNBC debate what did you?
0: like so much about Warren's performance. Can you put your finger on it? Yes,
1: absolutely. She was ready to debate. She is an extraordinary debater. She was not a put into a corner. She did she was not defensive. She defended herself and defended her positions. But there was no stammering, there was no uh, I don't know the answer. There was no uh, any number of things that uh, that that take away points in a in a debate. Uh, she and that moment that she had, that incredible moment she had, when she uh, and I'm paraphrasing, when she said, "Well, what are you in the race for if yeah. you're not going to introduce new ideas?" Uh, and when fight she for dunked them?
0: on John Delaney, that's right. Say, yeah,
1: yeah. Don, uh, John Delaney was a great foil, and, uh, and he did himself a lot of favors if he's going to run for something else, but not for president.
0: So, Peter, you have. A similar takeaway to Phillips, right? Yeah. Elizabeth Warren, the winner of the whole show.
2: Uh, uh, yeah, you put the two nights together, and uh, Elizabeth Warren swept. I think Bernie came back. You, you know, he um, he he bounced back after a, a a weak performance in the previous debate. Uh, Joe Biden, as I said elsewhere, took his geritol all and uh, <laughs> ma- managed to get through. I love that phrase. I um, <laughs> uh, I I think Biden is on the long run, going to prove to be problematic because of his
0: age. Yeah, there were a couple times, and I agree with, with I think, your collective assessment of Biden, but there were a couple times where he was trying to make a point, and it, it happens to all of us. It's probably going to happen to me in 10 seconds, but he just lost his train of thought and kind of sputtered visibly for 10 or 15 seconds. And it might seem cruel to pick on something like that. But if he is debating Donald Trump and has a couple of those moments, he's going to pay a price. Well,
2: look, six months or so ago, or, or, you you know, during the winter, Trump had some pretty vague moments. You know, he seems to be, you know, somewhat rejuvenated at the moment. But, you know, you get older, you have your moments. Rejuvenated, playing golf every weekend. That, you
0: know, that, 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 may well be I it. think he's rejuvenated because he, he fuels himself on conflict and, and beefs and That's feuds. Right. And, and not true. to say that he's got a feud with Elijah Cummings because the media has called it that and it really isn't that. It's a one-sided thing. But he's animated by anger. Yeah,
2: yeah but, but um, look, Bernie in the first debate um, appeared older. And I, I think Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden are going to present America with the issue of voting for older candidates. Um, and we just better get used to that now. M- maybe we will.
0: Um, but it, it's, it's a first. couple names that have not come up. And I think, Peter, when you and I wrote up debate analyses for GBHnews.org and did our, our little video wrap-ups. I don't think we really talked about these people either. I I've, have been impressed every time I've seen Julian Castro. There is something so smooth and polished, and I say that in a complimentary way, smooth and polished and almost urbane about his approach to these spectacles, that it impresses me every time I see him. He doesn't really seem to be having his moment like Harris had hers when she went after Biden. Maybe it's because he hasn't gone after anyone, um, although there's probably an example I'm not thinking of. But I remain impressed by him, wondering if he'll make a move down the road. And He's not nearly as cool as Castro. He's much hotter, and I think this might be part of his problem. But Cory Booker did pretty well too, I thought, uh, in the second of the, the second night of the second
1: round of debates. Do you guys buy what I'm saying about those two? I, I think Cory Booker, without question, uh, improved his his positioning, um, even though I think the argument with uh, with Biden uh, is one that I think will. Uh, sort of sputter out. Uh, I'm not sure how how long you can take that before uh, Biden comes up with a an answer that sounds like this. Do you uh, mean Amber, him
0: going after Biden's record on criminal, uh, criminal justice? Okay, I was wondering if you were justice. talking about that or because he also went after yeah. him Uh, about uh, Obama's deportation record, That's right. right? And
1: now that one, I think, that is where I think Biden is going to have problems. I think that more so than criminal justice, because uh, it's a huge issue. And Trump is basically going to say, before I did this, Obama did this. And in some ways, he's absolutely right. As far as Castro, I think Castro did himself a favor in, in citing two things. Talking about Puerto Rico when no one else was and, and talking to, in that sense, a lot of Latino, Hispanic, Latinx uh, voters, but, but also basically being forceful in, in, in talking about any number of issues. I think he has start, sort of allowed a spotlight to shine on him. We're here too He hadn't. But he also is trying to do something else. He's trying to sh- uh, basically present as best as he can, even though he's a candidate, a united front trying to basically bring the the Democrats back to a united front. Uh, Someone who didn't do that, but also did herself a favor, was Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard also uh, was able to Uh, score points by attacking uh, Kamala Harris's record as attorney general in California.
0: Every time I have seen people talk about Gabbard on Twitter, I've urged them to read this incredibly fascinating New York Magazine piece that came out a couple months ago. I can't remember the name of the woman who wrote it, but it's a really interesting look at the very strange upbringing that Gabbard had in Hawaii, where she was part of an almost cult-like, pseudo-Hindu group. Uh, It's worth going and checking out. And I also want to highlight, and by the way, I completely agree with you that Gabbard scored big points by going after Harris the way she did. But Gabbard has some really problematic foreign policy views, which, uh, you know, if we have uh, listeners out there who were impressed by her performance, it is worth doing some research on those. Peter Kadzis, I should let you hop in here.
2: Yeah, I I mean, um, I'm not a member of the cult of Castro. I thought he did well. Um, I think People, some people have suggested there be a there could be a Warren Castro ticket, and by the way, that's a pretty shrewd and s- smart observation, and could prove to be a, a potent ticket. Boston to Austin. Yeah, Boston to Austin. Boston. The old Austin. The, the old axis is revived. But <laughs> um, in uh, in in my view, there's only four serious candidates, and and that's you know, Biden. Warren, Harris, and Buttigieg. And Buttigieg just barely makes it. You know, you drop below him, and you've got people who have almost no ratings in the polls. Now, Cory Booker's a little different. He's up at a whopping 2%. Um, Is that it? it, Yeah, it's very low. By the way, I I find him appealing. I like him better as a candidate than I did as a senator. As a senator, he was always trying to have it both ways I mean people talk about Clinton and triangulating well triangulating is is somewhat sophisticated you've got three sides Booker as a senator used to talk strike me as talking out of both sides of his mouth at the same mm-hmm. time and um, I've seen tapes I haven't seen that up Booker in the flesh but I've seen several tapes of him in New Hampshire in Uh, coffee party, tea party settings. And uh, boy, it really seems like he's connecting. Um, He seems like a genuinely nice guy in, in person, nicer than the official one. And the official one's not bad. But to my mind, there's at the moment only four candidates. And the gulf separating these four from everyone
0: else is really pretty big. Is Harris going to stay in that group or is she going to sort of see whatever momentum she generated by I, hitting Biden on busing fade away?
2: Uh, no, I mean, she's already lost a third of that, um, which is, I've said every time I say this, is not unusual. These are very fluid times. Harris's, uh, the real clear politics rankings in Iowa have Harris second. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, I mean, she's you know, she's made some real headway in Iowa, where it matters, and Elizabeth Warren is second in New Hampshire. Um, It, in many ways, when we're looking at things nationally, we are distorting the picture. What really matters is, for the moment, what really matters is how the things play in Iowa and New Hampshire. And, you know, by the way, Buttigieg is in there, and, um, So is Booker. You know, Hmm. Booker plays—I'm embarrassed to say I I forget, but I think Booker plays pretty well in Iowa,
0: too. When I think about Harris, mm -hmm. I, I think of her as the candidate who, in theory, could be the strongest Democratic option to have a biracial woman, relatively young, telegenic. Record as a prosecutor. It just seems to me like if everything went as well for her as it could, she could be the perfect Democratic foil to President Trump. But I am struck time and again at the gulf between her performance when she is effectively prosecuting the case against an opponent, when she can be very effective. And the way she can look flustered and almost overmatched when she's having to play defense. And I think that's something It makes sense that there would be this discrepancy because of the work she's done all her life. But I still think it's um, something that, Probably should give Democrats pause.
1: I think it it does, uh, but at the same time, uh, I think folks have looked at some of the Republican um, uh, surveys and polling, and one of their biggest fears has been, according to a number of articles, has been um, a has been a um, a Kamala a Kamala Harris uh, Trump uh, uh, general election. They fear that because they're not sure how to handle. Uh, mm-hmm. Kamala Harris. It's uh, it, there. Do you go after her as a black woman? Do you go after her as uh, as Indian, South Asian rather? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you go after her as a former prosecutor who did not prosecute in their in their view uh, cases to the full extent they should have been? Uh, they're concerned about uh, Kamala Harris simply because they're not sure how to um, how to treat her in a general election. Having said that, I'm not sure she can rise above. Uh, where she is at the moment, which is about 12, uh, maybe 13% in national polls. Peter I, just pointed at you. I think yeah. he's he, he, yeah, he Phil, right. right. you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And folks are still looking at who can beat Trump. And that's why in a, in a recent poll, two recent polls in Ohio, it showed uh, Biden up 10 points against Donald Trump in Ohio. And that's what folks are starting to look at. They're starting to look at the Electoral College who can win Michigan? Who can win Pennsylvania? Who can come close to winning, or at least, or try to win Wisconsin, yeah. which is a different animal altogether? Who can win Florida? That's really what voters are are thinking about right at the moment.
2: Allow me a provincial observation. <laughs> um, in Massachusetts, an attorney general has never been elected governor. Um, people aren't sure why, but it might be that the very skills you need to put people in jail. Don't endear you to the general public. Um, I think that's an analogy worth keeping in mind with Harris. That's interesting. I, I'm not saying that's going to define Harris, but I I I, I think th- there's a little bit of uh, New England provincial wisdom that might that might transfer. By the way, the same is holds true in um, Rhode Island. No attorney general has ever been elected governor. Um, You know, we'll we'll have to see. Um, uh, She's a smart cookie. And by by the way, Philip, your point is really well taken about Republicans at Harris. But one thing about Trump is it's one thing for the Republicans to worry about her. My hunch is Trump won't because um, channeling the dark side comes so naturally to him that he will attack her (laughs) any which way yeah, to it's not, Sunday? It's not which one that's do you right. choose. It's go for
0: all of them. Yeah, it's yeah, it's when right. do
2: you deploy? What's what what slight do you deploy on what occasion? Is all that'll mean?
0: I believe that we are about to be kicked out of the studio, which means it's time to wrap up this installment <laughs> of the Scrum. But before we do, Philip Martin, any parting thoughts for our listeners?
1: Oh, I, I think it was very smart uh, for the uh, for the uh, DNC to hold uh, the 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 debate in Detroit, uh, because you weren't, of course, just talking to Detroiters. We have to think that seventy-five thousand voters stayed away from the polls in two thousand and sixteen. Uh, among them, uh, not only black voters, though that was a, a large number, but also suburban voters who uh, weren't sure who to vote for between Clinton uh, and and Trump. And I th- and so I think that they we need to go back to Michigan. And keep going back to Michigan, because I think it will be a pivotal point in who wins uh, the 2020 uh, election. And, and to close out,
2: um, I, I would reemphasize Philip's point, and that was something Bill Clinton tried to tell Hillary Clinton, and she ignored that advice, and she ignored it clearly at her peril.
0: All right. On that note, Philip Martin— senior investigative reporter at WGBH News, and Midwestern native, thank you for being here. Adam, thank you. Peter Kadzis, good to rap with you as always.
2: You're not going to call me a son of Dolchester <laughs> <Justin? laughs>
0: Peter Kadzis, yeah. OFD. Yeah. <laughs> I am grateful for your insights as well. And, of course, the three of us are delighted that you've taken the time to listen to this podcast. We would love it if you subscribed to The Scrum. If you haven't already, you can find us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all the places that you get your podcast content. We'd also be grateful if you left a review. If you haven't done that, that helps us get the podcast to more people. And we would appreciate hearing from you. If you agree, disagree, have some constructive criticism, whatever whatever it is, I am at Riley Adam on Twitter. Peter is at Kadzis. And Philip, what's your Twitter handle?
1: It's Philip WGBH.
0: You can also get us via email. Our email address is scrum at WGBH.org. Our engineer today was Doug Sugarts. We get crucial production help from him, John Parker, Andrew Massawa, and Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.